The goal is not to live a life without stress. It's biologically impossible to do that. It's about living a life with healthy, manageable stress. It's about rewiring because there's a way that you can rewire your brain because our brain responds to a scientific principle called neuroplasticity. There's ways that we can pump our brains up by doing some of the techniques in the book Hmm. to help strengthen certain pathways and things in the brain so that your prefrontal cortex, that resilient part of your brain behind the forehead can take over again. And then you can function in the world and thrive rather than survive. Welcome back to the show. I'm Travis Chappell, and I believe that if you can connect with the best, you can become the best. So after creating 800 podcast episodes about building your network, I've come to realize that networking is really just making friends. If you're doing it the right way anyway. Join me as I make friends with world-class athletes like Shaquille O'Neal, entertainers like Rob Deerdeck, authors like Dr. Nicole LaPera, former presidents like Vicente Fox, or even the occasional FBI hostage negotiator, billionaire real estate mogul, or polarizing political figure. So if you want to make more friends that help you become a better version of yourself, then subscribe to the show and keep on listening because this is Travis Makes Friends. Guys, I'm stressed. Are you stressed? Have you been stressed? then you are in the right place because today I'm talking to Dr. Aditi Nurokar. She is a physician at Harvard. That means she knows what she's talking about. And she specializes in stress management and recently wrote a book called The Five Resets, which will help you rewire your brain and optimize yourself for avoiding stress and even managing the good stress in your life. Because it's not all bad, which is something I learned today on this very episode. In this episode, we talk about forming neural pathways. We talk about neuroplasticity. We talk about a bunch of other stuff that I don't really know how to pronounce, and I'm frankly just too dumb to talk about, but luckily, that's why she's here. We also, speaking of pathways, talk about how she took her own path in life, despite having rigid expectations from her parents. All of this and so much more, and frankly, this is just such a fun conversation, and I wish and I hope that we can do another one. So get ready to expand your brain with Dr. Aditi Neurokar. What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Travis Makes Friends podcast. Today, I am making friends with none other than Dr. Aditi Nurokar. Aditi, how are you? Oh, I'm so happy to be here with you, Travis. Thanks for having me. Of course. Welcome to the show. You know, I get a ton of pitches from a ton of PR firms, and I say no to probably 98% of them. And But when your book came across my inbox, I was like, that is somebody that I absolutely need to talk to because this is something that's been at the top of my mind recently because of you know starting businesses and I got a couple kids and there was probably like a solid like six months to a year of my life that I just don't have any recollection of because I just felt like I was, I was so stressed and you know worried about so many different aspects of my life and I was trying to balance so many things and just ended in a lot of frustration. So this is a conversation that is very timely. So I appreciate your work in this area. And for those that are listening, before we even get started into the interview, the book is called The Five Resets. It's rewire your brain and body for less stress and more resilience. If you're listening, please just go pick up a copy, make it easy on yourself. Before we even get into what we're talking about here, I want to give the book a shout out and ask you, Didi, what was the core reason why you wanted to write about this topic right now? So Travis, very much like you said, you know, stress is no longer the exception. It's the rule. We have lived through a huge monumental event that impacted every single one of us on the planet. If we're lucky enough to still be here after the, you know, the big pandemic, 
And then just juggling the roles of parenthood. I'm a parent like you. We are managing our working lives, parenting, trying to take good care of our minds and bodies and spirits in the process. And it's just been one onslaught after the other. And, you know, there's no respite. Our brains and bodies need a rest and a break. And so we had the pandemic. And then during the pandemic, we had the racial reckoning. Then there was the Ukraine war. And then you know, the Russia-Ukraine conflict. And now there is yet another conflict and unprecedented rise in burnout and stress. And there is just a brains and bodies are wired to handle this level of trauma and stress. And it just goes on and on. And so I am a speaker. I'm a physician with an expertise in stress and burnout. I'm also a speaker. When I was speaking to large audiences, it's almost like my audiences asked me to write this book. I was reluctant for a long time to write because it's a huge undertaking to write a book, right? You're doing work, you're doing lots of other things. And then when people just ask you again and again, you know, dive deeper into this topic or that topic, and then it just becomes this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy of, you know, I think I need to write about this and really focus on what I know about stress and burnout from seeing individual patients And then what was fascinating, Travis, is that I started talking to these large groups, like, you know, groups of 50,000 people during the pandemic, trying to help various industries manage their stress and burnout. And the amazing thing is whether they were factory workers in Asia or, I don't know, tops performing CEOs in the world or childcare providers in North America, every single person had the same stress concerns. They were thinking about the same sorts of things because ultimately we are humans. We're not workers or, you know, all the things that the labels that we put on ourselves. We are human beings trying to make it through this like perfect storm of one onslaught after the other. And so I wanted the resets, the five resets, the book and the things that I teach in my talks to really serve as a raincoat to help people weather this storm, to give people science and strategies and techniques so they can stay more safe and dry because the stores are ending literally one after the other. And we need something to help us move through. Yeah, no kidding. Especially heading into another election cycle that doesn't seem to be like it's going to be any tampered down version of what it's been the last couple of cycles, unfortunately. So yeah, very timely book. And now that we're finished sinking the hooks in for how to deal with stress and how to manage those areas of your life. I don't want to give any practical things or give away anything yet. I want to save that toward the end of our conversation. And if it's cool with you, since this is the Travis Makes Friends podcast, I selfishly like to talk to interesting people, get to know you from a friendship perspective. So let's let's rewind the clock, Aditi, and go back in time to let's say seven, eight-year-old Aditi Neurocar. Take me back to that time in your life, set the scene. What was it like being seven-year-old you? Oh, I love this. I often try to stay in touch with my inner child. I think it's so important. I have a picture of myself when I was seven years old and I keep it close to me. It's either on my phone or, you know, it's like on a mirror in my bathroom or in my closet. And whenever I'm, you know, wondering if what the next step is in life, I often use that photo as a guide to say like, oh, what would she think? So I lived in India. I was born in Bombay and I lived with my grandparents until I was six years old in India while my parents were both doctors getting their training here in the U.S. Wow. And 
several times they tried to bring me back. And then I was really attached to my grandma. So I would go back to India. And then finally, at age six, when it was time to start school, I came here to the U.S., And of course, that has informed my perspective. When I was seven and eight years old, you know, I think that I had that sense of wonder and curiosity, like every child does. I, you know, was had an open heart as every child does. And now that I'm a parent, I think one of the greatest gifts, I love being a mom. One of the greatest gifts of being a parent is being able to get back in touch in that way with that sense of play and wonder and curiosity. And in fact, one of the things that I talk about in the book is this idea of flow. And so you've talked about it on your podcast before, and it's that sense of, you know, timelessness of the present moment. Mm -hmm. And when you are a kid, like when I was seven and eight years old, I loved riding my bike. I loved making art. So painting. And I loved ballet. And when I was doing any of those activities and swimming, I will add. And when I was doing any of those activities, I, you know, hours would pass like minutes. I had that sense of timelessness and I was in a state of flow. Now, of course, I didn't know it at the time. And I learned it in medical school, you know, like 25 years later. But this idea of like, it really has an impact on your brain and your body. And if we can just kind of Harken some of those things that we used to do as kids that we've lost along the way as adults that can have a huge impact on our well-being and feelings of agency, meaning like, oh, I can control things in my life when you feel powerless and you're stressed. And so I think I deeply think I love this first question of yours because I deeply think about that seven-year-old girl, yeah. six, seven, eight-year-old girl and who she was and that sense of bravery, curiosity, wonder and play. So one of the reasons I love having the show is that I get to talk to a bunch of really smart people about stuff that I'm thinking about and try to ask myself, is this a dumb thought or is this a smart thought? There are no dumb thoughts. There are no dumb thoughts. Only smart thoughts. Fair, fair. Okay. So this is something I've been thinking about lately and why I ask this question a lot of times to frame up these interviews. There seems to be like when you're a kid, the fullest version of your thoughts, the fullest version of your emotions, the fullest version of what you feel, what you think. You express whatever you're thinking, you emote whatever emotion you're feeling, and you do it to the highest degree possible. And then something happens from culture and society, from parents, from teachers, from all these other influences. And rightfully, says you can't just run around screaming at people when you get upset, but but you, you start to get contained and you start to learn these these factors that teach you how to control this thing and control that thing. And then I think, unfortunately, what happens is that a lot of people end up just staying in this amalgamation formation of all the influences in their life. And they never take the time to kind of what you're saying to reconnect to their child self, to their younger self, and get back into the state of being themselves. Obviously, with the adult version of controlling yourself and you know having some sort of reaction management and those things as well. But is have you found that to be true with most with with a lot of people when you're when you're when you're working with folks? Like, is this something that is common that like there's a departure from your true self because you get you know you you pressured into you know pursuing this path or going after this thing because your parents said it was good because your teacher said this is the the safest thing or society taught you that you should do this thing. So like, and then you just never revisit the ideas that you had when you were a kid. You never, you never fully step back into 
the full version of you or walk the path that that person would have chosen. Does that, does that question make sense at all? It makes perfect sense. It's so eloquently stated too. You know, what's interesting is with us as human beings, as we go through our life, now I'm not a pediatrician, I'm an adult medicine physician, but I studied embryology and neuroscience and all those things in medical school. And our brain is forming when we, as we grow, right? Like up until the age of 25, more or less, our brains keep developing. But the majority of our activity of our brain is set by the time we are very young, like young children. So our brains are formed in you know, most ways, and then it continues to evolve until you're about 25. Mm. And when we are young, we don't have any of those preconceived notions. We are truly who we are. We are stepping into our essence. And it's just, you know, and what we're learning, I'm sure you see this with your kids. I do with mine. It's like such a young age, you see changes and they're starting to become quote unquote socialized. And, you know, like my daughter the other day, what past Halloween wanted to be a black cat and go back to school as a black cat. And I said, go for it. And she's, you know, and then it's not Halloween. It's like weeks later, but you want to be a black cat? Like, go, go, yeah. let's, let's paint your face and go out, go to school as a black cat, you know? And then she said, no, mommy, someone's going to make fun of me and laugh. I said, no, it doesn't matter. But it's amazing how at such a young age, you get that, you know, the, the idea of like people looking, what will they say? What will people say? And then you play small. And it's such a shame because if only we could go back to that sense of who we are. There's this great quote, I don't know who said it, but the work of our lifetime is not to discover who we are, but rather uncover who we were and have always been. Mm. And I think a lot of the work that I do when I'm seeing patients or when I'm speaking to people or, you know, all of the different ways that I interface with human beings, I've learned that ultimately we all just want to be seen, heard, understood, and loved. And that is across age, race, sex, you know, socioeconomic status, nationality, industry, like what you do, how much money you make, all of that. And it's ultimately all we want. And it really goes back to those like deep needs that we had as kids of what really makes us tick, what makes us feel a sense of connection. Because for if we were lucky enough, we did have those connections as children with ourselves, with each other, in our family system, you know, in the world. And for some reason, through lots of processes, external factors that goes away and, you know, bringing it back. What I was mentioning, the prior example of like what I used to love doing as a kid, there's a Carl Jung quote, what did you do as a child that made the hours pass like minute barren lies the key to your happiness and bliss? Mm. I'm paraphrasing. Yeah, yeah. So using a lot of that wisdom that we know of childhood and really tapping into that in our adult self can really help us feel a sense of wholeness and well-being. Even yeah. though initially, I mean, I remember when I first like sort of carrying around a picture of myself when I was seven, like that's such a weird thing to do, you know? <laughs> You're like, what am I doing? This is so strange. But in fact, there's a lot of science behind like tapping into that inner child, yeah. feeling that sense of nurture and being the parent to that inner child that maybe you wish you had when you were young and didn't have the certain parenting that you now know you needed for yourself back then. Yeah, well, I, I mean, that's kind of, to me, become almost the basis for personal development is having a good relationship with yourself. And there, there was a time, Aditi, and I'm sure you probably feel the same way. There was a time kind of in my early adulthood where the thought of just like being by myself with nothing to do, with nothing to distract me, no 
TV, no music, no video games, no, you know, even like writing, like nothing, just me sitting in a car, driving somewhere. That thought by itself was like almost terrifying to, to the point, to the degree where it really made me start asking those questions and being more introspective. Like, why is that? Why do I feel that way? And it's almost like, I think at that time, I, I felt like I was almost a stranger to myself. It wasn't that I didn't like me. It was that I didn't know me. And it's always awkward to spend time with people you don't know, even if that person's yourself. You know what I mean? So it kind of became this like re-engagement at the time to to really try to be like, okay. And like kind of like you said, not to discover who I am, but to get to reconnect with who I was and to just spend more time with me and to be okay with it and to not really have an agenda. And as a parent, obviously, it's even more so this way, but now it's like the time I covet. You know, it's like when when I can go for a walk with nothing but just my thoughts, or I can go for a drive. You know, I, I live in Vegas and I, my family's from the LA area, and but they're like far away from the airport. So a lot of times it just makes more sense for me to drive uh, back to where I'm from. And so like, I'll just drive. It's like a three to four hour drive. And sometimes I'll just drive the whole way with no podcast, no music, no nothing. And just like thinking and spending time. And I just kind of realized it one day, like I would never have been able to do this for like 30 minutes, <laughs> like three hours. But it's, but I think that like just comes directly from that, that point of like what you're, what you're saying. Like we, just, we, we don't, we don't ever take the time to re-engage who we really are. And then, and then wonder why life doesn't give us what we want. You know, it's That's like, right. well, how, what, how are you supposed to know what you're doing? How are you supposed to know what you want? How are you supposed to know where you, where you're going, what you're doing? If you don't even know who you are. You know, it's like they say, like the most important relationship is the one you have with yourself. And that idea, what you're describing is that pondering, right? Like you're giving your brain the space to ponder and give yourself that space and spaciousness. And it's scary initially. And especially now, you know, I was a late adopter of technology. I didn't have a smartphone for many, many years when everyone else did. I still you have, have one, one now though, right? I have one now. It's such a bummer. Um, but I had a flip phone for a long time and I was living out of the country and I was like living on a beach. And so I didn't need a smartphone or, you know, I just used a flip phone. And then I had to, at some point, like it was, you know, I just had to become an adopter of technology and a smartphone. And I remember being on the subway in Boston or maybe it was like Philadelphia or New York because I've lived in both all of those cities and having my flips on and just sitting on the subway and everyone was like, you know, neck down looking at a device. And I remember thinking like, this is so weird because no one's looking up. No one's like letting their thoughts drift. No one's just like hanging out. And, you know, that that time that you have, there's actually lots of neural processes, like lots of things are happening in the brain in your drive from Vegas to LA. Like, it's not just, you're not spacing out. I know it feels like that when you're driving and you're looking at the horizon. I love that drive, by the way. I love, you know, driving from like LA to Pop Springs or yeah. even farther Vegas. So going through like the desert, it's, but, but you're really allowing your brain some time and space to just expand and feel that sense of expansiveness. You also modulate your breath when you do that. So when you're just like, when you have no distractions, you're just hanging out and you're breathing and you're kind of getting in touch with that natural breathing pattern. It's almost like an informal meditation session. And so for the people who are like, eek, meditation, no way, I would never do that. You don't have to do it, but you could like go for a drive or do, you know, take a walk and feel your feet 
on the ground as you walk and like notice your breath and just that sense of noticing, which unfortunately, especially now, Travis, like in 2023, no one, if you're in the grocery store at a line, at the bank, wherever you are, you are on a device. Like yeah. at all times, we are always glued to something in that sense of distraction. So, in, and un- unfortunately, that does impact our brains. Definitely for more stress, it impacts immediately our brain and body in terms of like dopamine and all of those, you know, brain chemicals. If only we could all just like go for a long drive once a week and just like, you know, a therapeutic drive yeah. um, or a therapeutic walk every day or, you know, just something to get back in touch with ourselves. So important. I do that too, by the way. I go for a walk every single day. Yeah. And it's like mindful, mindful meditation. I don't listen to anything, no podcasts, no calls, just like me, my breath, my thoughts. Think about my feet on the floor. Mm. For you, it's like when you're driving, the vistas, like feeling connected to nature and like letting your thoughts just roam. Walking is like the most underrated activity that you can do for for so many reasons. Like there's so many health benefits that you don't even think about. It's actually better for weight loss than running is. It regulates your blood sugar. You know, like it, there, there's a lot of physical health benefits, but also a ton of mental health benefits, especially if you walk outside, get some vitamin D. Like there's just, there's so many, like, I, I just wish sometimes, sometimes I feel, I feel like I wish we could just pull away all the BS and all the nonsense and the complicated formulas and everything and just get back to super, super basic, simple principles. Like maybe you should walk more, <laughs> like maybe yes. drinking some more water might help. Maybe like actually sleeping tonight or not gorging on blue light for four hours leading up to bedtime. Like maybe those things might help. Maybe they make you feel a little bit better. You know, like it doesn't have to be super complicated. You don't have to go on like a, you know, five day meditation retreat once a month to be able to reset. Sometimes it's just a matter of like, go for a walk, drink some water, <laughs> sleep You're a little bit more. speaking my language. <laughs> totally. It's like um, exactly what it is. So I want to I want to get into some practical stuff with you, but I, I don't want to leave the story too soon. So I want to get back into your your childhood. So you're seven eight years old. You're first generation immigrant from India, two physician parents, right? So yep. I'm assuming in Philadelphia, a suburb of Philly. In Philadelphia, okay. So I'm assuming there was probably not really many options in terms of like, do I go to school? Do I not go to school? Do I do this? Do I not do this? I'm sure there was probably a lot of like this is what you're doing. And you're probably like, so when you were making the decision to go to medical school, was it your decision? Was it your parents pushing you that direction? Did you have a passion for it? Did you have a kind of a deciding, like, was there a deciding factor that was ultimately like you versus your parents? Or did you really just really love it? And they loved that you loved it because they wanted you to do it anyway. I love this. It's like a therapy session. I love it. So first is I always wanted to be a journalist. Like okay. I wanted it to be the next Christiana Manpour. She was our generation's Clarissa Award. I'm sure you remember Christiana. I mean, she's still very much. Well, congrats on getting the endorsement from uh, Katie Couric then. That was probably right. for you. Again, Katie Couric, like my childhood hero, my dad. And I used to watch Katie Couric every, with Brian Gumble every single morning. You know, so I love Katie Couric beyond. And it was like such a dream for her to endorse the five resets. So I really wanted to be a journalist. And I went to med, I went to undergrad. I went to Barnard College, which is the Women's School of Columbia. And I was like, I am going to be a journalist. You know, Columbia Journalism School was right across the street. And I was already starting to get plugged in. I remember coming home one, I don't know, like Thanksgiving break for my freshman year and telling my parents, guys, I want to be a journalist. They were like, what? Journalist? 
my dad, you know, it was so funny. My parents, they were like old school immigrants back in the day. Yeah. Very progressive and open-minded in some capacity. But also I was their first kid. Yeah. And it was, you know, early, like before people had second or third careers. There was like no internet at the time. Yeah. And I was like, I'm going to be a journalist. And they were like, no way. Absolutely not. <laughs> Again, driven by fear. They were like, you know, my dad made some, like he cut out something from the New York Times being like, there's a shortage of doctors coming up and like journalists don't have two meals a day or, you know, they need three meals a day. You need three meals a day to live. And like, you might not get that as journalists. Again, fully fear-driven, scarcity yeah. mindset. And I was young and I didn't have that like sense of, I mean, I had a strong sense of self and they had instilled that in me, but I didn't have that. Like what I love this like new generation of kids who are like, they defy the norms. Like I didn't have that within me to say, I know what I'm capable of and I'm going to do it anyway. I sure. didn't do that. So I said, okay, I'll go to medical school. And I went and did my public health training because I was always really interested in the world. I was very interested in the human story and loved to travel. Hmm. So I did global health initially, public health. And then my journey to medical school was like, I took the scenic route. So it's really funny because then I'm now like a Harvard doctor. So a lot of my you know, family, friends, or Indian people will be like, ooh, like, what did you do to become a doctor? Talk to my son, talk to my doctor. You know, the young, the young ones. Like, you don't want to talk to me. Like, I'm not the one. Yes. I'm not the model. You may not like the advice that I give to them. But... Yeah, yeah. I was like, I'm not the model. Please don't come to me to ask me any questions because they just see like the end product. So I um, took the scenic route. I did an MPH. Then I lived in Geneva and I went to Kenya and I was working on like, HIV AIDS. And then finally, I kind of came back to the US and I felt really disillusioned by global health because I felt like everyone was working on these really huge issues like poverty or HIV AIDS at the time and, you know, economic equality. But then when I would be in Geneva in Switzerland, all these people were like wearing Ferragamo suits and driving fancy cars and talking about these issues. So it felt very like disingenuous to me at the age of 22. Mm. Like, what's going on? You know, so I came back to the US and I remember saying to my parents, my dad is like an amazing advice giver. And I told my dad, like, I want to make a difference in the world. And I don't know how. Like, I just knew I wanted to somehow connect. I wanted to reach human beings and connect with people. And I was in Kenya doing a project and I was working on HIV AIDS in Sub-Saharan Africa in Kenya with a USAID WHO project. And I met tons of ministers of health and they all were like, you should go to medical school. Like you can reach people and make that connection and you can have, you know, three meals a day. Like they were very committed to that cause. So when I yeah. came back to the U.S., I said, oh, I think I might want to go to medical school, but I wanted to do it my way. Like I took this whole scenic route. Yeah. And then ultimately, like I ended up doing journalism and medicine. So in hindsight, it was a beautiful path. I don't, I never believe in living life with regrets. So I will always do, you know, like I do whatever I want kind of thing that way. And, and yeah, so I think my parents very much would have loved if I had done like a six-year med program like right out of high school, you know, going to college, six-year med program. I didn't. I took a long, long time to become a doctor. I did lots of things. And now, even now, you know, it's so funny because you do all this training. Being a doctor is like, I don't know, four years of undergrad, four years of college, four years of undergrad, four years of med school, three years of residency, three years of fellowship. I lost count. Like that's too many years, right? And then you finish all of that. And so what was really funny is like, I ended up doing journalism anyway, because I do a lot of like media 
And the irony of all of it is that like, I feel like my parents, now I've gotten rid of like, you know, I'm old, I'm old. So I don't have that. I've like reconciled, like making your parents proud. You do things for yourself. And then Mm -hmm. if your parents are proud, great. And they've always been proud of me, of course. But I think being on TV, funnily enough, is like they're, they love it like more than anything. (laughs) Of course. What about, I became a doctor guy. So like, yeah, yeah, but you're on TV. Yeah. There's lots of doctors. Yeah. yeah. They're like, oh, we have enough doctors in our family. It was, it's just very cute. I think what's also really interesting about the human story, my story, your story, everyone's story is like, you might see a certain person and like degrees or where they are in their life, but like what it took to get there is like a whole another thing. I don't know. I would, I would really suggest to your listeners to like take the scenic route. Is Mm. that bad advice (laughs) to give to like a 20 year old? I don't think so. That's right away. <laughs> that's basically advice that I give to most people is just like, whatever it is, find your path. Like it's not, it's not your parents' path. It's not your cousin's path. It's not your pastor's path. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a, a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at Indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to Indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. It's not your philosopher, your philosophy teacher's path. It's your path. And ultimately, the place that I got to when I was a young adult that kind of led me down a super unconventional and completely opposite path than the one that I thought I was going to be on was I had this, this realization one day where I was looking in the mirror when I woke up and I just came to this realization that it was like, regardless of what everybody else in my life wants for me, I am the only one that will wake up every single day for the rest of my life, look in the mirror and see my ugly mug staring back at me. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm the only one that has to be me. I'm the only one that has to live with the decisions that I make. And I can blame those decisions on the influence of other people, or I can take responsibility for the decisions that I'm making, the actions that I'm taking and the place that they are putting me in 
and then realize that it's all a design of my own making. And if I'm not happy with it, then like the bad news is it's my fault. But the good news is if it's my fault, I can change it. You know what I mean? Which, which like brought in this new level of, of responsibility and uh, discovery, like a, a, a path forward to just be like, I don't really know how this is going to end up. I don't really know how the pieces are going to come together, but I do know that I at least think anyway, theorize that I'll probably find more fulfillment, even just taking the path than I will, even if I were super successful on this other path. You know what I'm saying? Like, even if success, like quote unquote success comes on this first path that I'm being pushed down, I think at the end of the day, I'm going to be happier, like going after this path, even if I don't reach whatever success I thought I might have been going for when I first started going down that path. So that was kind of- It makes perfect sense. Yeah, that was a decision point for me. That's cool. There's, There's two scientific forms of happiness. And like what you're describing is- eudaimonic happiness and the other kind of happiness is like hedonic happiness and so hedonic is like what you're saying right like success money all the trappings of like quote unquote what a successful life means like fancy cars a nice house and lots of trips on i don't know to like islands or whatever yeah Um, and then on a smaller scale like you know netflix binges and going out to restaurants and eating delicious food all important all good for us in the short term but the real like benefit of happiness, it's called eudaimonic happiness, finding a sense of purpose and meaning in our lives that like soft, calm, you know, like for you pursuing this path, for me pursuing this path, like feeling that deep sense of fulfillment and contentment it looks different for everyone. Yeah. But when you find that, and it, in fact, it has like different, it, it impacts your brain and your cells, even down to the cellular level, wow. eudaimonic happiness changes our cellular structure and our viral response and our anti-inflammatory response Mm. in a way that like the hedonic happiness does not. It's fascinating. That is really fascinating. Our bodies know, our bodies know the difference between that sense, the happiness we get with like purpose and fulfillment, which is like a calm kind of Like a peace, like a, a, yeah, yeah. That's just almost almost fairly constant. It's not like a fleeting. Yes passing thing of like, well, now that I'm not on the yacht smoking the cigar with a whiskey in my hand, I don't feel like that anymore. It is more constant, right? Yeah. And the, and then the hedonic, which is like the yacht and the cigar and like, yeah. you know, St. Bart's or wherever you're on the yacht, wherever you're from the yacht, there's this thing called the hedonic treadmill, meaning like in our brains, like that we hit, hit a set point. We all have a set point. So that's why lottery winners, you know, they win all this money. It's like you ask them, so many studies, right? Like, are you happy now? Are you happier after the lottery? And then they say, not really, because yeah. we, we hit a set point. So that's not to say like, of course, we should have plenty of money. We should have lots of leisure and activities and fun and joy. But it's that like, those things ultimately don't make you happy and don't necessarily make you less stressed. Well, and even on those particular things, it's also self-awareness around which of those things you're doing because that's what you want to do versus you saw a poster or you saw an influencer post on Instagram and you thought that that is what it meant to go relax. It's like, that looks different for everybody. It's, you know, some people, some people drive the Ferrari because they love driving fast cars and they just can't stand the thought of being in a Honda. Some people drive the Ferrari because they think it makes them look cool. And 
those are two vastly different reasons to have the Ferrari, just like the yacht, just like the cruise, just like whatever, like you got to just kind of taste and sample. And and that's why I, I like what you said. He's like, you, you ended up going to medical school and you ended up being in journalism and you ended up writing books and doing kind of a lot of things that you were originally planning on, but you did it in this really roundabout kind of a way that probably like, had you not done that path and you just went straight to the things that you're doing now, I feel like you would probably have always wondered in the back of your mind, like, what would have happened if I would have done that other thing? I wish that I would have at least expressed that for a little bit of time. And kind of like you said, it's like, if the goal is to kind of live regret-free, then you got to be willing to take the risk at some point. Yeah. You know, that palliative care nurse who has like, there was this palliative care nurse who has talked to tens of thousands of people at their bedside when they're dying. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Like the regrets of people who are dying. And like the number one regret is that I didn't live life on my terms. Mm. Like, like you said, like, that's like everyone's number one regret. So yeah. And, you know, living that your truth, whatever it may be, but getting there takes a lot of time and space, you know, for your audience listening. It's not like it happens overnight and there's so much trial and error and you have to give yourself a lot of compassion along the process. And I'm still learning like every single day, you know, it's an opportunity to grow and change and mess up and then like ultimately accept those challenges and failures and failure is just like a stepping stone towards something better. So this is another reason why I think your book, The Five Resets is very timely and in my life especially, but probably for a lot of us out there because it is way more difficult to have clarity around what you want when you are crazy stressed or anxious, or you have this internal burning feeling that you're missing something, or you forgot to do something, or you know you you just have increased cortisol levels, just really difficult to make any sort of clear decision for a path forward because you kind of lose track of what you want and and where you're headed, and everything gets foggy and cloudy, and you don't have clear vision without clear visions like where do you even take a step how do you even get out of that let's talk some some practical some practical pieces here now that now we've talked a little bit about story built some context time to fulfill what i said that we would fulfill at the very beginning of this which is some practical steps on how to eliminate stress from your life without giving away too much from the book can we go through a few of those resets i would say to your question of like i mean the observation of how can you make change when you don't feel like, you know, when you don't feel great, when you're stressed out, when you're anxious, and like, how do you even get there? The first is have that sense of self-acceptance to say to yourself that, you know, so if you are stressed, first, you are not alone because by and large, right now, like 70% of us are stressed or burned out. And that's like across every industry. So first, you are not alone. And second, if you are feeling stressed, it, it is more likely to be the, the norm and you, it is not, it's not your fault. And the reason is because when you are feeling that sense of angst and stressed and overwhelmed, a different part of your brain is taking over. So it's no longer the prefrontal cortex. So the prefrontal cortex is the part of your brain. If you put your hand on your forehead, the area right behind your forehead is your prefrontal cortex. And that's like adulting, essentially, right? It's like strategy, organization planning, all the things that like make us really good at, I don't know, adulting. Yeah. All the boring things. All the boring things. And then your amygdala, which is like deeper and kind of like at the top of your neck, deeper in your head, it's a like almond shaped structure. And that area, it's called the limbic system in your brain. 
And the limbic system is your emotional center. We call it the reptilian brain, which is like such a derogatory thing to say, but it's truly the part of our brain that has not evolved. And it's like reptilian because it's truly like from those, you know, cave people days. And that is what is governing your stress response, your sense of survival and self-preservation. And when you are feeling stressed and overwhelmed and anxious, that is the, the hot area in your brain. And it overrides the prefrontal cortex, like planning, memory, organization. So if you are feeling stressed and overwhelmed, you're not alone and it's not your fault. It's the biology of your stress working as it should. Thanks, evolution. Yeah, and stress isn't like the other kind of important myths I want to dispel in the book and with you today is this idea that stress isn't bad. You know, we think of stress as like a four-letter word, but in fact, it's unhealthy stress that's bad because good stress, healthy stress, when your amygdala and your limbic system is in check and the prefrontal cortex is working, it's what got you and I on the Zoom at 3 p.m. as planned. It's what got you up out of bed, got you to work on time, got your kids ready for school, got your partner, you know, you guys like had breakfast together and all the good things in your life, meeting a best friend, rooting for your rooting for your sports team, like all of the things that bring, that's all healthy stress. And so when healthy stress becomes unhealthy stress, that's when, when we think of like the pop culture word stress, it's actually unhealthy stress that we're talking about. Mm. Anxiety, you know, mood disorders, trouble sleeping, maybe stomach aches, headaches, dizziness, muscle pain, all those things. Like, and bringing that unhealthy stress and those symptoms back to healthy stress where it really serves us rather than hurts us is really the goal. So the goal is not to live a life without stress. It's biologically impossible to do that. It's about living a life with healthy, manageable stress. And that's what the five resets is all about. It's about rewiring because there's a way that you can rewire your brain because our brain responds to a scientific principle called neuroplasticity. I know you Mm -hmm. had on your show talking about neuroplasticity. This idea that our brain is a muscle, just like you would do, you know, like 50 bicep curls and then you would have like stronger biceps. You just do certain, you know, you pump neuron instead of pumping iron. That's like my nerdy medical joke because like neurons are brain cells and it's like, oh, just there's ways that we can pump our brains up in certain ways by doing some of the techniques in the book Hmm. to help strengthen certain pathways and things in the brain so that your prefrontal cortex, that resilient part of your brain behind the forehead can take over again. And then you can function in the world and thrive rather than survive and get out of that fight or flight mode, which is what your amygdala does best. Your amygdala is all about survival and self-preservation. And if you're in survival mode or self-preservation mode, like many of us, including me and you have been for like years and years because of the pandemic and all these external factors, it's hard. It's hard to make huge changes in our lives. There's a principle I talk about in the book called the resilience rule of two, because our brains can only really make two new changes at a time during periods of stress because positive change is also a stress on our brain. Hmm. And so in terms of thinking about how to have less stress, practical things, I have the five resets. There are five mindset shifts that can help you move from a state of overwhelm and stress and you know that, that feeling that many of us are very familiar with, all too familiar with over the past several years, and bring that unhealthy stress back to healthy stress. And it's all based on the science of our brain and body, on the biology of stress. And then I think the other really important thing 
that I have noticed in like self, you know, what I wanted to combat and really debunk is that, like you said, at the start of our conversation, that like you need some like fancy stuff to do any of this. It's like everything that I suggest is free. That was really important to me because I have, I've seen many patients from all walks of life. And yeah, it's great if you can afford to go to Bali for a month and, you know, or quit your job and move to Bali and learn to surf and like get back in touch with yourself and feel less stressed, like more power to you. But most of us don't have those, you know, we have financial constraints, we have lots of other constraints. So what can you do that's science-backed, that is free, that is private? Many of us are private people. We can talk a little bit about like toxic resilience and hustle culture. And like we already mentioned, like, why do we change from childhood to adulthood? A lot of it is like, what will people think? What will society think? So strategies are all free. They are private. You can do them like when anywhere, in a professional setting, in a personal setting, no one will know. And then the other thing is that it takes very little time. So it doesn't have to be like an hour a day at the gym. Because ultimately, like we're all very busy people. We are overextended. And especially when you're stressed, your brain is overextended. And what it really needs is compassion from you, a sense of grace, and lots of rest and TLC. I read this book, Hardwiring Happiness, that was written by a neuroscientist. And that was the first time I really like kind of internalized what neuroplasticity meant. So tell me, tell me if I'm wrong. Again, I like to bring on smart people so they can teach me things. So in, in the, the way that he kind of phrased it in that book was, when he, he was talking about it in context of happiness, not necessarily context of dealing with stress, but I was trying to you know wrap my brain around the concept here is so tell me if, if i'm if I'm right in how I understand this. So he basically said that you can't like trick yourself into being happy, but when you notice you are in a happy state, like something's happening in front of you, you're you're witnessing a a beautiful moment with your kids or you're you're looking at a sunset and taking in the beauty of that thing or or you're feeling grateful for some moment that happened in your life. He basically says like instead of just letting that moment be fleeting, do your best to catch yourself feeling that emotion and then close your eyes and feel as much of that moment as you possibly can. And he said basically what happens is you're training your brain to find that state like you're you're forging the neural pathway in your brain like a riverbed where like the first time the river runs through it, it might, you know, the river may not find its way on that path again. But on the hundredth time you have a real river and it's really easy for you, for your brain to find that path because you've forged these, these trails in your brain to get yourself into these different states over time by using these kind of practical tools. So if I'm understanding this correctly, what you're saying is kind of like these little tools and practices that you've put into your book based on these five resets will allow us to over time bring our state from being in this kind of fight or flight reptilian brain state from the amygdala and then forge that pathway to get us back into like our actual thinking brain and and back into the prefrontal cortex. Is that at all similar to what you're trying to say? Very similar. It's exactly right. You know, this idea like neuroplasticity, like you said, like you nailed it. It's this idea that it's, you want to cement. So it's like you can use the analogy of water, like you're describing, like a creek versus a gushing river or a trickle, you know, versus a gushing river or a one lane road, like a dirt road or a highway. 
Because ultimately, like, that's what's happening in your brain. It's just like, you know, one thing, a neural circuit is like a pathway and it's like just very weak initially. And over time with repetition, it just becomes stronger and stronger and stronger until it is like a four-lane highway or a rushing, gushing creek or, you know, a river. And it takes practice. So repetition is a huge part of neuroplasticity. So like you said that, like what you're describing is savoring, right? So it's like savor the moment, really feel it because emotion can help with neuroplasticity and laying down and cementing those pathways. But likewise, if you're really stressed, like you might not be able to find that. Like you might not be able to say like, I'm going to savor this moment because you just don't have bandwidth. So it's- You not even be realizing a moment's happening. Yeah. So just trust the process and do it anyway. And it will happen in time simply because of the mind-body connection. And I talk a lot about the mind-body connection throughout my book because it's a lot of what I was trained to do at Harvard when I did my fellowship. It was the science of the mind-body connection mm-hmm. because our brains and our bodies are, and, you know, the mind-body connection sounds like a really kind of like weird idea and construct, yeah. but, but in fact, we use mind-body connection all day, every day. It's like, when you are about to enter a meeting, like giving a big presentation, you feel like, you know, heart racing. Or when you fall in love, like when I fell in love with my husband for the first time, it was like butterflies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you say something embarrassing and then your face, it flushes. And you feel embarrassed, like the flushing that happens. Or you're, you know, about to go on an amusement park ride. And like, oh my God, I'm so excited. Or, you know, when you were a child, Santa's coming, you get excited. So that, you know, the sensations of the mind-body connection your mind is always talking to your body and vice versa. We use it all the time. Gut feeling, you know, I had a, I had a gut feeling. That's mm-hmm. like a perfect mind-body connection lingo that we use. But, but really, there's a science to the mind-body connection. And neuroplasticity, when you follow, when you do something every single day, like, you know, let's say like a five-minute walk. We talked about walking before, the lots of benefits of it. You might not feel like going for a walk, but if you just walk a little bit every day, you train your brain pathways a certain way and it, you don't even have to believe that the walk is working. In fact, I love my reluctant patients. They're like my most fun patients because they'll come to me like with very high levels of stress and they'll be like, you know, there's no way this is going to work. Are you kidding? And I talk about it in my book because I have lots of patient stories throughout the book because like I said, I love the human story and my reluctant patients are my favorite patients because then these things work and then they come back and they're like, oh my God, I didn't want to believe you, but this really worked. Mm-hmm. I'm like, it's not, it's your brain, it's your body. You're just, they're talking to each other again. Yeah. And then it's like, they're, they're always like the most excited when it does work. But you know, my resistant, reluctant patients are always my favorite. That's how it goes. That's how it goes. And the, yeah. the, the thing about this too is like, this is why reading reading books like yours and why the work that you do is so important because it has to be intentional. Once I understood that concept of neuroplasticity, once I understand, once you understand that like, oh, you can forge these pathways. Oh, it gets easier to get here over time. Oh, the repetitiveness, you know, like literally makes it easier for the neurons to fire and travel these paths. It's like, that's so cool. But also on the opposite side of the coin, it can be really scary because if we're not intentional about the things that we want our brain to do, unfortunately, we live in a culture that is, you know, I think 78% of news headlines are negative, are written in a negative, with a negative bias, you know, turning on any sort of television that has anything to do with the news is mostly negative. It makes you feel bad. 
a lot of social medias, a lot of negative stuff, a lot of people chirping at each other, a lot of haters hating, a lot of that stuff can really just get into your brain. A lot of marketing messages. We see, I read something the other day that said that we we see like something like close to 10,000 marketing messages per day now. If you count, wow. if you count every interaction, billboards, television, radio, podcasts, social media, like you are inundated with advertisements and marketing. And what does most marketing do? Most good marketers know how to speak to your problems and how you can solve those problems. They're not telling you how awesome you are. They're telling you how bad you are so they can offer you a solution. And it's like, I understand a lot of that, but it also just makes it, 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 it means so much more that we have the ability to change that because it should tell us how intentional we need to be in order to combat our brain from forging these neural pathways to moving into this negativity bias where everything we see is negative and, and it makes it easy for us to get into a state of constant stress because it's just beat into us all the time. We don't ever fight it because we don't know that it's possible to fight it or that it's doable to like forge a pathway to take us to a different state where we can be most productive, where we can be most happy, where we can have thriving and, and beautiful relationships with the people that we love. And that's why I, I just genuinely appreciate your work and uh, appreciate you for appreciate you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Where can people find the book? Do you tell us tell us uh, where you want us to go pick it up? I know they probably could find it anywhere, but is there a particular place that you want us to go to grab it? You can find it anywhere at your independent booksellers. You can find it on any any platform, and you can also check out dradidi.com or specifically five resets.com. Number five resets.com. Perfect. So if you are listening right now and you have not yet picked up a copy, like I told you to at the beginning of this, okay, then go pick up a copy of the five resets. Uh, you can go to fiveresets.com or you can just go to Amazon or any bookseller. Hopefully I see it uh, as I walk through all the airports I go to. If and when I do, Aditi, I'm gonna, I'll take a picture and send it to you. Oh, I would love it. That's going to be so exciting. And then before we go, first of all, your writing style is just really, really good. And there was one post that you have that you wrote a, a while back that is about living a lifetime in a day. And I thought the concept was super powerful and really cool. So as kind of like a you know way to button up this conversation, can you walk us through lifetime in a day concept? Yes, I was in fact going to bring it up when you were talking, when we started the conversation, when you asked me about like being a child and, you know, seven or eight year old kid. So the concept of living a lifetime in a day is something I have prescribed to many, many patients, which is the entirety of the book. It's all of my prescriptions to patients, you know, over the years, things that I've talked to patients about. And when you think of the term living, live a lifetime in a day, you may think it is like packing everything in a day and do everything that you can in one day. And that's like the antithesis of what it really is. Living a lifetime in a day means that you encapsulate all of the important scientific elements of a long, meaningful life in the arc of one day. You spend a little bit of time in childhood, like we talked about, Travis, at the start of our conversation. Spend a few minutes in, in a state of childhood during your day in, you know, wonder, curiosity, play. Then think about some time in work. It doesn't have to be paid. It can be unpaid work that you're doing, but really feeling that sense of accomplishment and productivity. Spend a little bit of time in work. Spend some time in family, another life stage. And it doesn't have to be family, meaning biologic children and partner. If you are don't have a partner, if you don't have children, focus on that sense of community. We know that there's lots of health benefits to community, but family, your chosen family. 
Then another element to finding, you know, living a lifetime in a day is to spend some time every day in vacation. And that's very easy to understand. It's something that we talked about. Hedonic happiness, you know, do things that bring you joy for the sheer joy and pleasure aspect without anything else attached to it. One of the other really important and the last parts of living a lifetime in a day is retirement. Again, something we touched on in our conversation, Travis, this idea of reflection and taking stock and really thinking about your day. So those are the elements of living a lifetime in a day. Childhood, family, play, vacation, retirement, and work. You do a little bit every single day in a day. And so you live all of the elements of wake up, what make up a long and meaningful life in one day. There are no time prescriptions. Like even if you spend four minutes in childhood and, you know, eight hours in work, like many of us have to for our daily jobs, that's okay. Uh, But make sure you try to hit, even if it means like at the end of the day, quote unquote, time in retirement is like, as you're getting ready for the end of the day, think about what you accomplished, you know, have a little bit of solitude, take some stock, you know, family time, spend some time with your family members or your chosen family, make a call. If you live alone and you, you know, you just take, take a minute to make a call to someone you love, someone in your network and connect with them or send a text. It might be hard to make a call, connect in some capacity to community. And so I write about this as one of the strategies to building a sense of resilience, to really feeling that sense of purpose and meaning. It's one of the 15 strategies I offer in the five resets. And the five resets are like the five large mindset shifts. It's all informed by the hundreds and thousands of people either I've taken care of as patients or spoken to during my talks, because ultimately stress is a universal experience. And, you know, we have lived through something so traumatic and continue to have collective trauma and stress is the great equalizer, all of that. And I hope that the five resets can be the antidote. The Five Resets by Dr. Aditi Nurokar. Aditi, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Hope we can do it again, maybe in person sometime. And and I will definitely be recommending the book to as many people as I can. I'll shoot an email to my list when it comes out. Because I think there's something that is just not about, like not talked about enough by people who actually know what they're talking about, if that makes sense. So I appreciate you very, very much for putting out this body of work as I think it's very needed. Thank you, Travis. I am so happy to join you today and loved your questions. I always have appreciated the way you ask questions. Like there's such a human element to your interviewing skills. And Thank you. Appreciate that. you're very personal. You really reach the human behind the titles and degrees and all of that, which we know is like just the covering, right? But like you really reach the part of the person that you're speaking to. So a lot of your questions were really meaningful to me too. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Appreciate you so much. Well, uh, again, we'll, we'll, we'll do a part two for sure at some point. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for spending some time with me and my friends. If you want to be better friends with me, then head over to travischapel.com slash team to subscribe to my free newsletter, Your Friend Travis, where I share what's on my mind about life, building a business, raising kids, being married, and anything else I would normally share with my close circle of friends. That's travischapel.com slash team. 
And my biggest ask of you since I'm sharing my friends with you is to share this episode with a friend of yours that hasn't listened to the show yet and leave us a quick five-star rating in Apple Podcasts and in Spotify. It would mean the world to us as it helps us make sure that this show continues to be more valuable to you. Thanks in advance, and I'll catch you on the next episode. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.